Radio Orbit in five minutes. Good evening. Welcome to Radio Orbit for August 1st, 2004, Sunday morning. This is Mike Hagan. I'm your host. I'll be with you for the next three hours. Talking about all kinds of different things. I don't have a guest set up for tonight, uh, but I've got plenty of news and information and wild and wacky stories to talk about. Also some great music. going to open up the phone lines a little bit later and uh, take some of your calls. We're going to be looking for some interesting stories from y'all. Anything that you want to talk about that uh, might be wild and wacky and mysterious and unexplained and, I don't know, things along those kind of lines, things we like to talk about in the middle of the night. So, getting things going right off the bat. I want to say thank you uh, to uh, my guest from last week, Kent Stedman from cyberspaceorbit.com 
www.cyberspaceorbit.com. Kent was a great guest, and uh, we had a great time talking. And if you would like to listen to the interview with Kent uh, from, uh, uh, from last week, you can go to that website, cyberspaceorbit.com, and there's an MP3 file there. I think it's 6 megs or... Actually, there's a better uh, version, I think 19 megs. They're both up there on the site, and uh, you can just listen to the show streaming. If you'd like to, it was a pretty interesting conversation. Uh, we talked about all kinds of different things. We were talking about the sun and uh, what's been happening on the sun recently. In fact, we'll do an update on the sun here in just a few minutes. Uh, we also uh, touched on some ancient history. We talked about uh, some of the mysterious things that go on in our past that we don't know a whole lot about. Uh, we touched on some musical issues. We talked about lots of fun stuff, so... Anyway, Kent Stedman uh, was my guest, and thanks, Kent, uh, for being here last week. Um, as I said uh, this week, it's just going to be you and me. Going to play some good music, take some calls a little bit later, and uh, um, uh, and go go from there. I want to say thanks to Ernest for uh, doing a nice job before me on the uh, Heart and Soul show, playing some great R&B music and uh, setting me up nicely, and uh, hope you're enjoying your rest of your morning there, Ernest. Um, also, anybody that'd like to get in touch with me, uh, either now or uh, anytime after the show, um, you can contact me at Orbit Radio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com. That's Orbit Radio at AOL.com. And uh, send me an email if you want to request a song or uh, tell me a story or something like that. Okay. All right, in the meantime, uh, we're going to start off with a little bit more music here. It, uh, it's a beautiful evening out there. It's a full moon. It's actually a blue moon uh, tonight, which uh, actually the 31st. I guess it's not tonight anymore. It's a Sunday morning, but a blue moon uh, regardless. The blue moon is something that uh, basically what it means is we have two full moons in any uh, one-month period. Uh, and this is the first time that it's happened this year at least. And it's a beautiful blue moon out there. It doesn't actually look blue, although sometimes it does if there's dust in the atmosphere or if, uh, if there have been volcanoes blown or forest fires or things like that. But for the most part, it's uh, just a, a term that's used for having two full moons in one 30-day period. So anyway, uh, we're going to... If I can get this CD player figured out here, we're going to queue up little Big Head Todd and the Monsters, Midnight Radio on Radio Orbit. Be back in a few minutes.
Midnight Radio on KOPN, Big Head Todd and the Monsters, from the album of the same name, Midnight Radio, from, I don't know, probably back 1990, something like that. This is Radio Orbit on Sunday, 1st of August, on a blue moon, Sunday evening, Sunday morning, Saturday evening. All right. Let's uh, talk about the sun a little bit real fast. We had quite a conversation with Kent Stedman last year or last week about what the sun's been doing lately. As we know, uh, to give a short recap, the sun goes through an 11-year cycle, and that cycle uh, oscillates up and down every 11 years, and uh, goes through what we call solar maximum and solar minimum. Solar maximum is a time when there are lots of sunspots, lots of flares, lots of coronal mass ejections, lots of uh, material being thrown off the sun out into space, and all the planets, everything in the solar system is affected by that stuff. So, uh, the last solar maximum was in the year 2000, and it should have been uh, tailing off uh, shortly thereafter, 2001, 2002, but what we've seen the last... Uh, two, three, four, now going on five years because we're coming up on 2005 here. We're halfway through 2004 at least. And we have had uh, incredible activity on the sun ever since the year 2000. So what that uh, is looking like to a lot of people, to uh, a lot of researchers that look at the sun a lot, is that this 11-year cycle that we've witnessed for uh, 1,100 years or so, um, that cycle may just be a cycle within another cycle, and what we're seeing right now may be uh, a change in that cycle or another one of these mini cycles or or or, uh, or larger cycles within cycles. Uh, that that may sound a little bit confusing, but um, basically what I'm trying to say is that we've only been watching the sun closely, uh, relatively speaking, for a very short period of time. So we've only been able to track the uh, the sunspot cycle for a short period of time, and, and and only in the last 120, 150, really stretching it, 150 years, have we had the technology to really monitor the sun with any sort of accuracy. So we have a very, very, uh, very short, small frame of reference when it comes to looking at the sun, and so. Even though we think we know a whole lot about it, we really don't know a whole lot because the sun's been around for billions and billions of years and we've only been watching it for a few. So the fact that it's doing something different right now uh, than we expect it to do really shouldn't be all that unexpected because we just haven't been watching it that long to know what all these different cycles are. And there are cycles within cycles within cycles uh, and that happens throughout the universe and throughout uh, the solar system. So, anyway, with that uh, taken care of, we have seen some incredible activity on the sun in the last few years, and uh, it doesn't seem to be letting up. Last week, we went through a whole series of big flares that were just uh, uh, very, very large solar flares, and luckily, none of those were directly geo-affected. We had a couple of big mag storms, uh, magnetic storms, and some beautiful aurora borealis up in the northern latitudes, even reaching down to uh, toward the middle latitudes. When the sun gets that active and we get, uh, we get activity that's that, that powerful, you can actually start to see the aurora borealis or the northern lights in, uh, towards the middle latitudes here and probably in a real dark place on a high hill in Missouri. You might even be able to see a little bit of it there. Of course, in the southern latitudes, in the southern hemisphere, they call that uh, Australis 
borealis, which basically just means the southern lights, but they see the same phenomenon, but they just look to the south because what happens is that that phenomenon happens at the poles, the North Pole and the South Pole. The solar wind uh, that is uh, blown off by the sun constantly, that solar wind interacts with the magnetic field of planet Earth. And sometimes it strengthens the field, and sometimes it weakens the field, and uh, in any case, it interacts with the field and everything in the solar system. I can never uh, emphasize that enough. Uh, we, 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 take, we take the sun very much for granted, and it does, send, uh, it does tend to come up every day. But we really don't, uh, in our everyday sort of lives, we really don't think about the real implications of the sun and how important it really is to life on this planet. In fact, uh, it's important... Uh, the most important thing that we have without the sun obviously everything else goes away so the sun is uh, acting up lately been having some wild storms happening like I say these uh, uh, talking about the um, northern lights the uh, the sun's energy and the what we call the solar wind interacts with this magnetic field of the earth and it creates an electromagnetic phenomenon which we witness visually as the northern lights and it's really pretty cool to see if you've ever been up in Canada or if you've ever been up uh, somewhere in the northern United States in a place where it's dark when it's really happening. Man, oh, man. I mean, it really will blow your mind. And uh, it's something that it's very difficult to explain unless you, uh, unless you see it yourself because it's actually it's, it's more like a verb than it is a noun because it's this thing that's in flow, in motion, and uh, really a neat thing to watch. So anyway, the sun... Uh, gave us some great northern lights last week and uh, popped us with some pretty, pretty high amounts of radiation and uh, the Earth's magnetic field got whacked pretty good last week but didn't seem to affect anything too deeply. We didn't have a problem with the uh, electric grids. Communication seemed to be okay and all that sort of stuff. And that's what the sun directly uh, affects. It also directly affects radio transmission. So uh, if any of you guys are shortwave operators out there or ham operators, you know that the severe solar storms wreak havoc on your hobby. And it's something that... Uh, there's nothing, absolutely nothing you can do about it. You just got to deal with it. Uh, so that's what's going on with the sun. Uh, that big region, solar, uh, I think they call it 8652, was a big area of sunspots that was had Earth right in their line of sight. It was right on the middle of the disk and rotating around and shot off some big flares, but nothing seemed to whack us. And now that... That, that dangerous area seems to be rotating around off the western limb of the sun, back around to the backside, and we'll see that in about 25 days or so when that area rotates back around to the front side or the visible side of the sun, and then we'll have to see what it looks like. We have no way of observing it while it's on the backside, and we don't know if it will get larger or if it will uh, dissipate. If it gets larger and it say, stays in the position where it's at, well, then... Next month might be interesting too. We may see uh, we may see some more activity like we saw earlier this month, and uh, the effect of these large flares seems to be cumulative. And uh, the concern that we have, us, those of us that watch the sun, our biggest concern is that the magnetic field of the Earth, which has been weakening lately, uh, our concern is that 
the radiation from the sun, the light from the sun, the solar wind, uh, which is also uh, actually c- contains material, protons, electrons uh, from the from the sun, loads of them, all kinds. And if, if if we knew the actual weight of the material that was being blown off every week, uh, every day, every hour, every minute, it would uh, it would be stunning. In any case, that that uh, debris that material from the sun interacts with the earth with the magnetic field and if we get too much of it uh, it can actually shut down the magnetic field of the earth flip the field uh, eliminate the field for uh, for for an amount of time and if that happens well then things get really interesting here on planet earth Uh, the magnetic field is what protects us from the dangerous the harmful rays of the sun the sun exhibits and uh, delivers radiation across a huge spectrum and only some of that is visible light some of it is in the infrared some of it is in the ultraviolet it goes all around and it, it, including radio waves uh, microwave energy uh, that the uh, a huge a huge part of the electromagnetic spectrum is delivered by the sun outward throughout the solar system and all of that affects our planet so uh, anyway uh, the magnetic field is very protective for the earth and if that gets shut down or significantly reduced or if we have a flip if we have a shift where magnetic north now becomes magnetic south well like I say things get really interesting for planet earth and I won't go into detail there you can use your imagination but uh, let's just say your your Saturday night party time in Columbia is going to be going to be a little bit interrupted so with that We'll get back uh, to you in a few minutes here. I'm going to open up the phones probably at the top of the hour. I'm going to be playing a lot of music in between. Right now, this is the red. Red Hot Chili Peppers. That was Big Head Todd. Still had that thing playing. Don't know what I'm doing here in the middle of the night. All right, enjoy this.
Red Hot Chili Peppers on KOPN. That was given away from Blood Sugar Sex Magic. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri Source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio, KOPN, serving the heart of Missouri, Columbia, Glasgow, Guthrie, Wooldridge, Wilton, Elm Tree, Easley, Centertown, and the entire mid-Missouri area. Great to be with you this blue moon, Sunday morning, Saturday evening, chilling out, listening to some good music, talking about the sun, talking about lots of crazy things. Going to open up the phone lines a little bit later, 443-8255. That's 443-8255 if you want to give me a call and tell me about your wild and crazy experiences. I'm looking for stories about ghosts and UFOs and... Oh, man, what else? Crop circles and... Oh, just mysterious, unexplainable things that maybe you want to talk about. Maybe you've had something happen or you heard a story in your family or something. I'm interested in all that sort of stuff. also want to see who's out there listening, if anybody. And going to be uh, mixing in some music for the rest of the uh, evening here and talking about some other stories that have been in the news. There was uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about this first hour, uh, and that is one of uh, a real famous uh, scientist, a guy who was real important uh, to science, died on Wednesday. Uh, His name was Francis Crick. And Francis Crick, along with another guy named James Watson, back in, uh, I want to say it was 1953, uh, they were English scientists. They worked at a laboratory in England. Well, these two guys figured out the molecular uh, structure of the DNA molecule. Now, they didn't discover DNA, but they did uh, figure out what it looked like. And that's, of course, something that's familiar to all of us now, that double helix structure of uh, the DNA molecule. Well, those guys figured it out. And Francis Crick was an incredibly... uh, Pretty incredibly wise guy and a great scientist and did a lot to move forward this whole uh, idea of genetics that now has gotten so interesting uh, over over the last 50 years since Watson and Crick made their discovery. We've seen quite a bit happen in the field of genetics and a lot of it is very controversial these days and I think we'll talk about that here in a second. But uh, anyway, so Francis Crick, here's to you. Uh, you did a great thing and um, incredible, incredible discovery. And I imagine it's interesting for uh, Mr. Crick looking from beyond the grave now uh, to what his discovery has led to and what it might lead to in the future here. Back in 1953, the idea of cloning and uh, genetically manipulating cells and animals and plants, this stuff seemed like the the stuff of science fiction. In fact, it was the stuff of science fiction. And in fact, there are certain people that uh, say that in certain government laboratories and uh, the conspiracy theorists among us, they would say that a lot of this research actually went back quite a bit further. Um, But we know that around the end of World War II, uh, around the end of World War II is where things really started to change. Things really started to get interesting. And that... Ah, oh boy, I guess, you know, you could, you could get me talking on a, on a yarn here, and I may actually do that um, 
because we need to lay the, the groundwork for a lot of the different things that we're going to be talking about over the, over the next weeks and months here on orbit. And, in fact, um, one of my guests who's going to be coming up in a few weeks, I haven't exactly uh, tied him down uh, when we're going to schedule the interview, but his name is Dr. Colin Ross, and he is a, uh, a doctor of psychology and a man who is an expert on the topic of mind control. And Dr. Ross runs a psychiatric institute called the Ross Institute, and he also wrote an incredible book a number of years ago. The book is called Bluebird. And I happened to read Bluebird a while back, and uh, it confirmed and uh, educated me on a lot of things that I had sort of heard in brief here and there, read a story here and there on the web, but really didn't have a lot of real firm uh, real firm confirmation of some of the things that I had been seeing and reading. But in any case, Dr. Ross is going to be a real interesting interview, and we're going to talk about things like The Manchurian Candidate. As you know, the movie, The Manchurian Candidate, interesting, that the, the original movie came out in 1953, and that, of course, is the same year that Watson and Crick made their discovery about the double helix structure of DNA. I'm sure, I don't know if there's a connection there, but I kind of doubt it, but it just seemed interesting now that I was talking about it. So, anyway, back in 1953, there was a movie made called The Manchurian Candidate, and it's been remade now 50 years later, and it was just released on Friday. And I haven't seen the, uh, the, new, the new film but I have seen the original, and I do know that the original was based in fact, not in fiction, and that this idea uh, that a human being can be controlled through hypnotic suggestion, the creation of multiple personalities, uh, these things are possible, and they were experimented on, uh, uh, they were experimented with in great, great detail in the 1950s and the 1960s through the 1970s. And uh, some would argue that that stuff is still going on today. I'm not going to go there right now. But anyway, Dr. Ross is going to talk with us about that. And one of the things that he will bring up that's sort of relevant to all of this stuff, the scientific breakthroughs and advances that came after World War II, is he's going to talk about something called Project Paperclip. And Paperclip was... Uh, Paperclip was a project uh, that was undertaken by the U.S. government. The, uh, the forerunner to the CIA was an organization that was called the OSS, and the OSS was operating uh, in World War II Europe. And after the war ended, um, that agency did not go away. It was morphed into the Central Intelligence Agency. Well, one of the first, uh, one of the first um, projects or one of the first operations that this organization undertook was called Project Paperclip. And Paperclip was basically a recruiting operation that involved uh, getting as many German doctors and scientists from all different areas of research, all different areas of, of endeavor, and to recruit them and bring them over to the American side so that they could continue their research. Now, this may seem strange to uh, a lot of people, but it's well documented. I'm not making it up, and uh, there's plenty of information available if you uh, just uh, do a search on 
uh, Project Paperclip, or better yet, go out and read Bluebird or a book like that. Uh, MK, you can look uh, for MK Ultra, MK Naomi. Uh, anyway, lots of these different code names for these different operations that were undertaken. But in any case, Paperclip started around 1945, I want to say 1945, but uh, don't quote me on the actual date when it started. But anyway, Paperclip was a recruiting operation to get Nazi scientists and Nazi uh, researchers to come over to the United States and work for the U.S. government. Now, this, the justification for this was that, um, that the Soviets were doing it. The Soviets had been recruiting as many of these scientists as they could get, and, and, and our people apparently said, well, we have, to, uh, we have to confront the Soviet menace, which, of course, morphed into the Cold War, which took us through the mid-'80s, and uh, some would say that that's still going on. But anyway, uh, Paperclip brought all these guys over here, and uh, some people may be familiar with names like Werner von Braun, Werner von Braun, of course, was the head of the U.S. rocket program. Uh, without Werner von Braun, the United States uh, astronauts would never have walked on the moon. Well, they certainly wouldn't have in the time frame that in the time frame that they did in 1969. Werner von Braun uh, originally was uh, the designer of the V-2 rocket uh, for the German Army, which is. Uh, uh, and the V-1, and uh, of course the entire rocket program in Germany. But those were the rockets that were launched over uh, uh, over the uh, over the Channel there into England. So Werner von Braun, among many, many, many other doctors and scientists, some of which who had performed horrific experiments on human beings, uh, including children in some cases and uh, certainly animals and uh, anyway these were not the most pleasant people uh, but at the time they were deemed to have a necessity uh, for national security so we brought all these people over here and a lot of the work continued a lot of the work continued under uh, under names like MK Ultra Project Artichoke MK Naomi and the list goes on and on. So we're going to be talking about that stuff with Colin Ross in a couple of weeks, and he's going to uh, really, really expand on uh, what I've talked about here, and we're going to learn about how a Manchurian candidate, or a sleeper, as they're sometimes called, is actually created. And um, it's been done, it's been, uh, it's been documented, and it is quite a thing. So we'll be talking about that with Dr. Ross in a couple of weeks. And... Uh, as as we talk about these things, you're going to see that a lot of things tie together. Uh, if we look to the past, we find a lot of interesting answers for the present and also for the future. So a lot of times on Radio Orbit, we're going to go back to the past and we're going to talk about some of the things that happened and how they actually affect uh, the world that we live in today because they really do. And don't think that the, uh, the effects of the things that happened in 1945 and the 1950s, I don't think that those things aren't having a direct effect on the state of affairs in our country and the world today, because they are. We'll be back in a few minutes. i got to take care of a little bit of uh, pay some bills here with a underwriting spot here in a few minutes, but we'll play a little music before that and be back to you in a few.
Pearl Jam, KOPN Radio Orbit. All right, where the heck is it? I'm trying to find my underwriting thing for the Columbia Housing Authority. There it is. Okay, some of the funds for this program are provided by listener support and a donation from the Housing Authority of the City of Columbia, located at 201 Switzler Street. The Housing Authority can be contacted at 573-443-2556. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5. And we're talking about... Well, we were just talking about Project Paperclip and some of the early operations of the CIA. We're going to get into a lot more of that stuff down the road on this program. Maybe not tonight, but we might touch on a little bit of it. I don't have a guest tonight, so I'm just kind of, kind of winging it, just kind of talking about lots of different stuff. Um, I did mention that James uh, or that uh, Francis Crick died on Wednesday, and he's the guy that uh, originally discovered, along with James Watson, the double helix structure of DNA. And without those guys, all of these crazy things that are happening now with genetics, uh, we would not. Uh, at least uh, in the way we know them now, we wouldn't dis- have discovered them the same way. I imagine that somebody may have discovered that. If it wasn't those guys, somebody else probably would have. But it has led to all the stuff that we talk about today now, that we talk about and we see in the news and we hear on the radio and all the debate about genetic engineering and uh, the, the moral and ethical questions that this technology is, uh, is bringing to the fore. And, boy, they really are some interesting questions because uh, we now have the ability to manipulate life. Uh, and, in fact, in some cases, to, to, to really create new life. Some of the things that these guys are doing, uh, they are creating organisms that have never existed before. Organisms that have never existed before on planet Earth. Now, what's the implication of those sorts of things? What are the implications of those sorts of things? Forget about the stuff that we're just messing with. Uh, you know, in other words, uh, we go in and we try to alter the genetic structure of this or that. Uh, maybe we go into a particular gene and try to adjust the DNA structure of it to eliminate a disease or to create blue eyes instead of green eyes or something like that. Well, those things have pretty profound implications in and of themselves, but when we start actually creating new organisms that we enter, uh, that, we, that we allow to enter into this biosphere, uh, which is, a, well, in a perfect uh, ideal situation, the biosphere is balanced, and it's balanced with all these different ecosystems and all these different organisms that occupy all these different uh, ecosystems throughout the planet. And when you start eliminating organisms and adding new organisms, uh, which is what we're seeing happening right now, we see a whole lot of species that are being eliminated on a daily basis, uh, extinct. Literally, they will, their, 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 their presence of their species is no longer here on the planet. And then we're also creating new things all the time. And the effects of these things, we really just don't. We really, we just really don't know uh, what they might be. And I don't, uh, I don't like to give this a negative spin. I'm not particularly, uh, I'm not particularly opposed to this sort of research and some of the work that's being done because um, science, by its nature, asks questions and tries to solve problems. Um, what I see, though is a butterfly effect sort of thing. And that, uh, if uh, 
what that means is that we really just don't know what the implications of this stuff are. There are a lot of people that can write about horror stories that we're going to see um, Frankenstein and uh, uh, genetic modifications out of control and uh, it's going to change things for the, for, the, for the bad, for the worse. But there's also an argument that, uh, that things will get wonderful because of it. It's just, uh, um, it, we really just don't know, and I guess that's what I like to talk about is these things, because the, the implications of what is happening right now on planet Earth cannot be known. The dynamics of the situation that, are, that we're involved in the middle of right now, uh, the dynamics are too great. And when I said the butterfly, uh, the butterfly effect a few minutes ago, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, it's an old term that was, uh, uh, that was coined back, I want to say again back in the 50s and 60s, um, when these guys were doing, computers were just kind of coming uh, into their own, and people were starting to do what they call computer modeling. And one of the things that they were trying to model was weather patterns. And the weather patterns of the planet are very dynamic. There are different systems throughout the planet that act as one system, but in, but in, in that one system they all act independently and interact with one another, and it really is this one interconnected system. Uh, and uh, within the big system is all these little smaller systems. So anyway, they were trying to come up with some good models for weather so they could predict better storms and hurricanes and all this sort of thing. Well, the computer modeling just was ineffective and uh, they just couldn't get accurate because what they realized was that the smallest, smallest change in a certain parameter, there are so many different parameters, so many different dynamics in these equations, that the smallest change in one of the, uh, in one of the parameters could lead to a just an incredibly huge and unexpected change in the in the entire system. Uh, for example, uh, as, as example, what they said was that the the wings of a butterfly flapping in Asia could cause a hurricane in the Atlantic. So the the full implications of, of the butterfly the butterfly effect, and one of these days I'll be able to say those two words together. The implications of the butterfly effect are that very small changes, very small vectors of energy in particular directions can change very large systems into something that was not expected before. So this is something that we also see in the laboratory. We see this in chemistry when we do chemistry experiments with uh, with chemicals, for example, we have uh, one of the term one of the terms that's very prominent and used quite often in chemistry is the term equilibrium. And equilibrium means that a system is at balance and uh, that it's stable. The opposite of equilibrium is called disequilibrium, and we use the term disequilibrium for systems that are chaotic or unstable or not in balance okay so when you have a system that's in equilibrium in balance those systems tend to be very strong and they tend to to take 
a significant amount of energy relative to the energy, the total energy of the system. Um, I'll try not to be uh, trying to be so vague, but anyway, uh, when a system is in equilibrium, it's strong, and it's difficult to move that system out of equilibrium. You have to apply a significant amount of energy to the system in order to move it out of out of equilibrium. Now, conversely. When you have a system that is at equilibrium or is in balance, I take that back. When you have a system that is in disequilibrium, that is out of balance, well now a very small amount of energy directed in any particular vector can bring about a brand new equilibrium. And that brand new equilibrium will often, oftentimes, be something that was completely unexpected. It brings, it creates a new system, a new stable system. And this is what's going on on planet Earth right now in a lot of different ways, I think. Uh, the system is in disequilibrium. We can see that everywhere we look almost. Um, but a little energy directed this way or that way could bring back, not bring back, but could bring on an entirely new equilibrium of which we have no way of knowing what it might be. It might be paradise. It might be Armageddon. And uh, we're going to find out soon enough. Be back with you in a few minutes at the top of the hour. Mike Hagan, Radio Orbit, KOPN.
respect you feel like an insect well don't you worry buddy cause here he comes through the ghettos and the barrio and the barry and the slum his shadow is cast wherever he stands that's a green paper in his red right hand Bad Seeds on KOPN Radio Orbit. 
It's 3 a.m. August 1st on a blue moon, full moon, tonight over Columbia, the heart of Missouri. It is 3 o'clock, like I said, and this is KOPN 89.5, Mid-Missouri Source for In-Depth News, Verse Talk, Music of the World, Morton Radio, Community Radio. It's KOPN, Columbia. My name's Mike Hagan. If you missed the first hour of Radio Orbit, we talked about the sun, did a little update on the sun, what's going on. Um, everything's cool for now. Just leave it at that. If you want to hear an update on the sun, we'll do it every week. At the beginning of the program, we'll probably do an update on the sun every show uh, because the sun is such a big part of our lives, whether we like to realize it or not. And uh, the sun has been doing some wacky things for the last four or five years, and we like to keep our eye on it just so we know what's going on, even though there's not much we can do about it. So we talked about the sun. We also talked about Francis Crick, uh, the uh, one of the discoverers of the double helix structure of the DNA molecule, died on Wednesday. He was 88 years old, and uh, his discovery obviously led to a lot of the things that we're experiencing today in our technologically advanced society that uh, is rolling wildly out of control towards some sort of conclusion, I have a feeling, uh, and uh, the DNA discoveries were obviously a big part of that. Now we do all kinds of different things with DNA, including create brand new organisms and animals and creatures, and we combine them. We, one of the classics, I think, was the combination of the tomato uh, with the salmon uh, there was some sort of a fish uh, gene in the salmon that they incorporated into the red tomato that would allow the tomato not to freeze or it wouldn't frost. And that way, uh, if the frost came, you wouldn't ruin your tomatoes. But who knows what the hell else that uh, salmon gene did that was in the tomato. So um, anyway, though, that, that, that happened years and years ago, and it always sticks in my head. But who knows what the hell's happened since then. So... Uh, there's all kinds of different things going on in the fields of genetics and technology in general. All, uh, it seems, every area of human endeavor being affected by these things. So we talked about Francis Crick a little bit and the implications of those discoveries. And the implications uh, get bigger and bigger every single day. And where they go, nobody knows. Uh, we also talked a little bit, uh, kind of got on a tangent a little bit, uh, talking about Project Paperclip and some of the, uh, some of the early early days of the CIA and uh, what was going on back there. We'll be talking about that with Dr. Colin Ross in a couple of weeks when we get him on the air. Um, speaking of future guests, I've been working hard to put together some good shows for you guys. I will do this once in a while, though, too. Open the phone lines and, uh, um, and just uh, spend the evening talking about whatever it is I feel like talking about and playing some music. So we'll do that once in a while, too, like we're doing tonight. But there's plenty to talk about, and uh, uh, we'll do that often enough. Kent Stedman, who was my guest last week, uh, he'll be a regular guest here. Uh, Kent is a close friend and one of the sharpest, coolest guys I know, and he knows more about things uh, than, uh, than most of us put together. So Kent will be on now and again, maybe once a month, something like that. Um, I've got uh, an interview scheduled with a woman named Lucy Pringle. Uh, Lucy is a crop formation researcher uh, who lives in England and uh, she's an aerial photographer and uh, has some incredible stories and the pictures that we're going to put up and show you guys when Lucy's on the air and I'm not sure if it'll be a taped interview or if it will be uh, live on the air but anyway when you see some of the things that have 
shown up on the landscape in England in the last 10 years. If you're not familiar with this topic, uh, you need to listen to that program and you need to look at some of the imagery that we're going to be showing you that night. And if nothing else, it will astound you. You may have uh, your thoughts one way or another about how these things occur, uh, the formations that appear in these crop fields overnight in the middle of nowhere, usually, without any uh, notoriety, without any claims, and incredible designs that seemingly would take a long period of time just to survey them, much less to build them without any trace afterwards. So anyway, we'll be talking about crop formations with Lucy Pringle and looking at some incredible photography uh, with Lucy. That'll be on, I don't know, I'm going to talk to her in a couple of weeks. So anyway, uh, Phyllis Gauld, the owner-operator of Fate Magazine. I'm going to be talking to Phyllis on Tuesday, going to do that interview and uh, then air that on the air maybe next weekend if we don't have a live interview lined up uh, but Phyllis will be an interesting interview she's had some uh, paranormal experiences herself and she'll be talking to to us about some of the things that have gone on in her life and how she got involved with Fate Magazine she just recently took it over and Fate Magazine if you don't know about Fate has been around for a long time I don't know exactly how many years but I want to say about 20 years maybe not quite that long but anyway uh, Fate Magazine has been a classic uh, sort of underground magazine about the paranormal and the supernormal and uh, stories about all kinds of different things that uh, just uh, don't get talked about much in the mainstream media. Some which may uh, be valid, some which may not be, but at least um, at least Phyllis is out there putting the stuff out there and letting people take a look at it and make their own decision. And it's very highly entertaining stuff uh, regardless. So Phyllis Gauld will be my guest coming up very soon. Uh, like I say, we're going to interview her on Tuesday. Uh, Dennis McKenna. I'm working hard to put a, put an interview together with Dennis McKenna. Uh, Dennis, if you don't know who Dennis McKenna is, uh, Dennis and his brother, Terrence McKenna, uh, were pioneers in the field of uh, what's come to be known as ethnobotany. And in the early 70s, the late 60s and the early 70s, Terrence, uh, who was a guru of mine and... Uh, uh, who died in the year 2000. Terrence was an incredible man, and him and his brother in the early 70s went to South America. They, they, were, they did the California thing, did the LSD scene, did the India scene, and then went to South America. And what Terrence and Dennis learned and experienced in South America was the subject of a number of books uh, including the invisible landscape, um, the archaic revival, uh, and a number of other books. And what these guys talk about and what they look into is the effects of hallucinogenic plants on the human psyche and spirit and physical body and how these things are incorporated ritualistically into the societies of the indigenous tribes in South America and Central America. And not only down there, it's uh, throughout, uh, throughout the world, there's a history of the use of hallucinogenic plants for spiritual reasons in these cultures. So Terence and Dennis 
did some incredible research about this stuff in the 70s and continue today. Dennis uh, continues his research. He has a Ph.D. ethnobiologist or ethnobotanist uh, who knows more about this, who's forgotten more about this stuff than any of us will ever know. But uh, he's going to be talking to us about hallucinogenic plants and uh, the history of them, what they're really capable of doing beneficially for the human race, and uh, also the dangers involved. So when we get Dennis on the air, that'll be a great one for all you trippers out there, uh, because you'll learn more from Dennis uh, than you ever heard before. The, the tribes that they spent time with in South America, the stories that they tell. And uh, I talk about Terrence posthumously, but the stories that he used to tell. Wow, blow your mind. And the experiences that they had on these, uh, uh, these hallucinogenic plants, which included uh, psilocybin mushrooms, which grow wild all over the place, including here in Missouri, I think. Um, and also uh, something that's called dimethyltryptamine, DMT. Dimethyltryptamine is a, uh, a compound that's found in a drink that's called ayahuasca that a number of the tribes concoct down there. And, uh, boy, when you drink ayahuasca and you take a DMT trip, there's uh, some interesting things that happen. So, anyway, Dennis will be talking to us about that and lots of other things. The history and the stories alone will be worth hearing, and uh, you'll learn a lot, too, about... Uh, we, we'll, we'll probably touch on the war on drugs and uh, what really happened in the 70s with LSD and with some of these other uh, mind-altering or mind-consciousness-expanding expan- uh, substances because they had a profound effect uh, on an entire generation in the 70s and then uh, were completely uh, buried and um, demonized by the federal government um, and in some cases uh, uh, with good reason um, but there was also some very valuable things uh, that were revealed and those things were were taken away also and uh, some things um, goes back to what we were talking about before we need balance Uh, we don't need uh, we don't need to swing completely to one side or the other because when that happens things get out of whack so anyway Dennis McKenna will be coming up in a couple weeks Uh, I'm working on an interview with a guy named Peter Hagelstein who is an MIT uh, professor at MIT working on cold fusion and he is sort of a heretic (laughs) doesn't get a lot of uh, attention paid to him by his peers although he is a tenured professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology um, but because he has studied and believed in cold fusion for a long long time uh, he gets uh, looked down upon by the establishment institutionalized scientists and Peter Hagelstein you heard it here first okay he's got it figured out these guys had it figured out okay cold fusion is real it is real and it is replicable they can repeat these experiments as to what's really happening they don't know yet we can't explain all of it um, but we can't explain a lot of things and again and it, it, it comes down to this whole uh, quantum uh, the idea of quantum um, physics uh, which is just thrown a complete monkey wrench into the establishment sciences uh, whether they'll admit that to you or not quantum physics is really screwing things up the idea of non-locality uh, 
and uh, uh, the idea that that uh, particles and waves are separate things yet interdependent and uh, can, neither can exist without the other yet both exist within one another this is really uh, really really blowing things up in in science and we're we're really seeing some revolution uh, in in science right now but you're not seeing it um, it's not being dis- displayed to the public because it's uh, uh, the, the the establishment is very difficult to move from currently held positions, and that's always been the case. So Peter Hagelstein, if we can talk him into coming on the air, he's very uh, um, uh, reluctant uh, to do the interview. Um, but I'm in an a ongoing email conversation with him, and I'm hoping that I can convince him to come on and talk to us. So those are some of the things we have lined up, and those are some of the things that we're going to be talking about on Radio Orbit on a weekly basis. I want to give you guys an idea of what the show is going to be like um, so you know whether you're going to want to tune in or not, tune in or not if this is something that might be up, up your alley or not. But I hope to talk about a lot of really interesting things, talk to really interesting people, and also play really cool music. So with that in mind, here's a little.
Woman, The Doors, on KOPN 89.5. FM, Radio Orbit. It's about 3.26 in the AM. This is Mike, with you for another hour and a half, talking about the wild and crazy. And where's that last thing I wanted to talk? Oh, you know, man, this is something that really gets me. Now, this is one that's really kind of under my skin, no pun intended. I don't know if y'all are familiar with... Oh, by the way, uh, let's see. 1-800-895-5676-KOPN. Also, uh, 874-5676 if you want to request a tune or something like that. Uh, And if you've got an interesting story about an interesting topic, something that's maybe a little bit out there, uh, give me a call at, uh, what's the number? I think it's uh, 443-8255. That's if you want to get on the air and tell your little story. So, All right. Uh, like I said, just about uh, about 30 minutes past the hour of 3, and uh, I'm going to play one more tune here, talk to my friend Ernest for a second, and then I'll be back. We're going to talk about RFID tags. I don't know if anybody knows what RFID is. It stands for Radio Frequency Identification. And uh, RFID is a bad idea. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes coming up here. Right back on Radio Orbit.
Radio Orbit. 
All right. I said I want to talk about RFID. Talk about being asleep. We better wake up, man, because this stuff is really getting to me, okay? If you don't know what an RFID is, it's a, uh, it's a little... It's a small, almost invisible, like the size of a grain of rice now. A little, they call it a radio frequency ID. It's, a, uh, it's, it's used to store information, and it's fast replacing the barcode. And uh, it's a source of a lot of controversy these days. Uh, businesses um, talk about cost-effectiveness. It's something that they use to control and track inventory. And uh, I'm sure it really is good for that. Uh, there is another side of it, though. There's a security side of it. Um, there's a question of confidentiality. There's a, con- there's a question of tracking. And there's also the question of, uh, of hacking. So we're going to talk about that a little bit right now. Um, RFIDs. The... Put them on a product, basically as a uh, little computer chip, but it has a transmitter on it, and it transmits a signal whenever it's within a certain distance of a reader. Uh, that reader can uh, can tell where that particular item is located, and can tell lots of different uh, uh, lots of different things about about the item. It can say what it is. It can say where it's located on the shelf. Uh, It can say what the price is. It can say what the manufacturer's part number is. So basically it contains all the information that's that's contained in a barcode, but it's on this little chip and it's actually uh, capable of transmitting a signal. Now, from what we know, they can hold up to 128 uh, bits of information. And that's a, a pretty significant uh, uh, bytes. I, I apologize for that, uh, 128 bytes of info. But anyway, that's a reasonably significant uh, amount of information. And there is two sides of the story, as there are with most. The one side is um, on the side of the retailers and the manufacturers and the distributors for tracking inventory and uh, uh, managing their businesses, really. Uh, because if, uh, if you've been in the business world and you've, if you've done anything out there where you actually sold a product, an actual thing, instead of a service, well, if you're in manufacturing, if you're in distribution, or if you're in retail, you realize that inventory is your lifeblood. And the more you know about your inventory, the better off your business is. The better you control your inventory, the better off your business is. So RFID is something uh, that is uh, from from a manufacturing and distribution standpoint an, an incredible advance it allows these guys uh, to track their inventories uh, much better than they could in the past and uh, interact it uh, or integrate it with their computer systems and uh, a whole host of di- uh, things become easier with RFID um, and uh, for example the supermarket RFID on grocery items or at any store, I guess, uh, within reason uh, where, 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 where it made sense. Um, if the items are tagged uh, with RFID and there's a reader at the door or at the checkout station or whatever, 
you basically can just roll your cart through and it will recognize everything that's in your cart and ring it up and probably if uh if some of these people have their way with uh, what they'd like to do continuing the technology would be to actually implant a chip in you in whoever wanted one at least for now whoever wanted one uh, and that chip would contain information about you and information about um, your credit for example you might have your credit card information on that chip and when you walk out through the checkout line in your grocery store, and this is hypothetical, but uh, this is certainly not far from uh, from what we're seeing. And in fact, there's uh, there are some experiments going on in in, in certain markets where uh, some retailers are experimenting with this exact sort of technology that we're talking about. Okay, so this is not fantasy. This is stuff that's really happening, and uh, it's going to be happening more and more. So, anyway, uh, so you walk out, whatever's in your grocery cart automatically uh, gets charged to your visa or your smart card if you don't have a chip. Maybe you got a smart card in your wallet. That's the next thing. Try to incorporate all of this information into one card as opposed to having, uh, you know, a visa, a MasterCard, an American Express, your JCPenney card. Well, if you had one card that could be programmed and you could put all of this information on that one card and then you could just choose uh, which... Uh, uh, which particular account you would like to use, well, uh, that becomes something that's attractive uh, to a lot of people. And I admit it's attractive to me. It makes things easy. Um, but it also makes it easy to be taken advantage of and to be used in other ways. And this is where my concerns start to enter my mind and they're basically civil libertarian ideas for the most part privacy issues and um, RFID is something that could change that altogether because one of the things that I'm telling you about RFID is when they leave the store how to turn them off or how to deactivate them they're very small uh, you don't even know they're there in most cases. They can be in clothes and everything else, and you won't even know it's there. And the question is, well, how much tracking can really be done? And maybe not right now, but in the future, will this be another technology that gets pushed further uh, to track the product further and to know more about you for, quote-unquote, marketing reasons? And... Uh, things like that so RFID boy it's again it's one of these things that has uh, benefits on the one hand yet on the other hand it's changing so fast and going to change the way we do things so fast that it can also have unintended consequences like we talked about before and uh, there's also the idea of a hacker being able now to hack this stuff and uh, there's a guy um, 
His name is Lucas Grunewald, and uh, he writes for a German magazine called Heise, and he talks about vulnerabilities of RFID, and uh, he talks about you know that they're, that they're they're durable and they can withstand a good deal of radiation, and and by radiation I mean light, I guess for the most part it's not like you're going to be exposed to serious radiation, but you know they can be washed and. Uh, that sort of stuff, but they have these gaping security holes that uh, allow hackers to try to exploit them. There's, um, yeah, this guy actually created a program called RFD Dump, which lets you look at um, and display all of the information that's within an RFID tag, and also fi- uh, and also modify the user data using a, a texture and or a, or a hex editor. So what you can do is um, you can protect yourself. Uh, by wiping out the the data that's on the RFID after purchasing a product, um, and and that's why he created this software uh, was so that consumers could protect themselves by wiping out that data. But uh, on the other hand, it can also be used for malicious you know projects. And he and he talks about these things. And uh, so what what are what are some of the vulnerabilities of of, of these RFID tags? Well. One thing that comes to mind, uh, uh, prescription drugs being mislabeled, uh, drug interactions that could be real dangerous if those things are tampered with or if they're not correct. Um, a, a, a traditional barcode will show signs that it's been tampered with. Uh, it's difficult to tamper with a tra- traditional barcode. But um, uh, RFID tags so far are not. The technology is advancing so fast that the security measures that need to be in place uh, are just not there. And, um, you know, hackers could essentially walk into a store and, and just reprice a whole section of uh, goods or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever they wanted to do. And I'm sure that, they, that if you put your mind to it, you can come up with uh, many other things uh, that, that they could do by reprogramming these RFID, RFIDs. So. The other thing is, uh, you know, what if somebody can just cruise by your trash can and scan it and find out everything you use in the last couple of weeks? You know, there's a privacy issue because they don't tell you how to turn off that product when you buy the product. They don't tell you that that thing's in there. They don't tell you to turn it off or how to turn it off. In fact, they don't give you an option. But uh, anyway, um, if you uh, are interested in that, uh, do a web search on this guy, his name is Lucas Grunwald, G-R-U-N-W-A-L-D. And uh, Lucas Grunwald, and maybe put RFID in with your search, and you'll be able to pull up um, that software. And again, the software is called RF Dump. <laughs> A fitting title. And it lets you uh, lets you wipe out the data that's on that RFID tag if we ever start to getting a whole lot of those coming around. And they are coming because uh, giants like Walmart and Home Depot, which, and these guys define the industries, okay? They define the industry. So when Walmart embraces RFID technology, you're going to get it, all right? RFID, RFID technology is coming. The technology is here. The, the, the actual chips themselves will be in products if they're not in products in test markets already, and it's something that you as a consumer need to know about and protect yourself uh, from and uh, let, your, uh, uh, 
let your representatives wherever they wherever they are know how you feel about it and that you know that it's something that needs to be watched because uh, there are personal liberty and privacy issues that are directly related to RFID technology and nobody's being told about it and so I'd like you to know about it I also don't like the idea of the, this uh, the chip uh, implant that we talked about a little while that's happening too whether you think it is or not there's a company called Digital Angel and uh, Digital Angel manufactures a under the skin subcutaneous so it's called chip it's very small and uh, the technology was originally developed for animals for pets to uh, find them if they ran away and again the auspices of that are great and you know it can be very helpful if you lose your dog or your kitty cat but there's the other side of it as well and there's the Orwellian side of it and that is where uh, my concern lies I'm not worried about finding Rover I'm worried about people being tracked their movements their purchases their lifestyle and uh, it's a control mechanism and I just think that people need to be aware of it so that's RFID if anybody has any comments on that uh, send me an email at orbitradio at aol.com if you'd like information on that I can uh, forward more information on it uh, on the topic to you also if you're interested give me a call at 443-8255 if you've got any interesting stories to tell me uh, about the strange and unexplained I'm surfing around a little bit here on the web as I'm talking to you and uh I'm over at my friend Teresa's site, surfingtheapocalypse.net, www.surfingtheapocalypse.net or .com. Anyway, Teresa's another one of these incredible news reporters out there who's really looking at a lot of different things and really opening the spectrum... uh, of information up to a lot of different people and there's an article on there about Tutatis and uh, Tutatis is uh, one of these near-earth objects so-called NEO we refer to them as a near-earth object and Tutatis is an asteroid that has a orbit that takes it across the path of Earth's orbit every few years and it is very big the size of a small city and on the 29th of October I take that back on the 29th of September Tutatis will be um, making a close, close a close call with planet Earth here uh, Tutatis is going to come within about a million miles of Earth that's about four times the distance between the earth and the moon the moon is about a quarter of a million miles away from the planet at an average actually it's about 240,000 miles average changes as it rotates around the planet the orbit uh, gets a little bit bigger and a little bit smaller depending on where it's at in the orbit so anyway um, Tutatis is going to be within a million miles of earth which is four times the distance from the earth to the moon The reason I say that is because I want to give you a frame of reference that in cosmic terms, this is not 
a great distance. It is a whisker. And uh, Tutatis has a very interesting orbit. It, uh, it has what we call a three-axis orbit. So it's, it's or, uh, uh, rotation is what I'm trying to say, a three-axis rotation as it moves around its orbit. Around its orbit. It rotates on its own three-dimensional axis in all three dimensionals, in, in all three dimensions. So it has this really strange, funky sort of rotation, and it makes its orbit sort of erratic. And uh, scientists have been, uh, at NASA have been watching Tutatis for a number of years since it was discovered, and it has a very erratic orbit. And the margin of error for Tutatis's orbit is almost as big as the distance between uh, Tutatis and Earth coming up in September, September 29th. So, of course, you have the uh, conspiracy theorists uh, who are concerned now about an impending impact or some sort of interaction between Tutatis and planet Earth or the moon. And this is uh, not um, completely out of the realm of possibility. The NASA scientists certainly say that this is not going to happen. But again, there is a margin of error, and we never really know what the, uh, what the true orbits are going to be. The, the solar system is a dynamic place, and just because something did something the last time doesn't mean it's going to do it this time. Uh, anything could have happened in between the last time it was here and, uh, and now could have had a collision with another asteroid, for example. Could have been affected by another, uh, the gravitational pull of another body that was out there floating around in its general vicinity. Uh, it could actually uh, um, uh, you know, be a, a further distance away and not a, not a nearer distance. So we really don't know, and that's why they have this margin of error. But again, the margin of error, I think, is uh, speculative at best. So... Um, so we've got that to think about, Tutatis, and uh, Tutatis, of course, when you think about that, well, then you have to think about any other asteroids or comets that might, uh, might also be Earth crossers, as we call them. There's no way of knowing. There's no way of knowing how many are out there. We know that in the past the Earth has been struck many, many times. And uh, even in our recent history, uh, uh, in Tunguska, an area in Siberia, in Russia, or the former Soviet Union, there's an area called Tunguska. And back in 19... Oh, man. 1907? 1911? Uh, four o'clock in the morning, I can't quite remember. But in the early 1900s, between 1907 and 1911, there was a gigantic explosion in the area called Tunguska in Russia. And it leveled hundreds of square miles of forest, literally laid it down flat and burned a significant part of it. Um, it was investigated shortly thereafter. I forget the guy's name. We'll have to do a show or do a story on it one of these nights. But I'll just tell you the basics, basics of it right now. A guy went to, a number of uh, scientists went to go investigate it shortly after it happened. And uh, actually in Europe, uh, there was a glow, sort of a rosy, hazy glow in the sky for weeks after this happened. And uh, 
it was an astounding event and it was explained as an asteroid impact uh, supposedly that didn't actually hit the ground but exploded in the atmosphere above the forest in Tunguska and literally wiped out I mean it was incredible okay the the power of many many nuclear explosions and this was just a very small rock so there are these rocks that are flying around out there and they uh there's no way of knowing how many they are we that the the earth and our solar system what we call the heliosphere the earth and the solar system you have to remember are also dynamic and they're also moving just like the the moon is revolving around the earth the earth is revolving around the sun well the sun and our entire solar system also revolves around its own center which is the center of the Milky Way galaxy which is in the direction of Sagittarius the constellation Sagittarius if you look in that direction that's the direction of the center of the galaxy the Milky Way at least now the Milky Way in turn has its own center revolving around another center which revolves around another center around another center ad infinitum on and on and that's the way the universe is built these levels these wheels within wheels and all the way up to the macro and all the way down into the cellular and the uh, the atomic and the subatomic and this is the mystery of the universe because the further you go out the more you see the further you go in the more you find and this is profound implication and science is coming to see this now in quantum mechanics and quantum physics and it's really really frustrating them <laughs> but it doesn't have to be frustrating it's something to be embraced that everything is connected everything is a part of everything else and everything is going to stay that way for good bad or ugly so we got a lot going on and a lot to think about it's 359 you're listening to radio orbit on kopn 89.5 fm mid-missouri source for in-depth news diverse talk music of the world more than radio it's community radio kopn i'm mike hagan your host of Radio Orbit. We've got an hour left. I'm going to take a short break here. And when we come back, it's late and early at the same time. And I think we're going to talk about intelligence in a few minutes on Radio Orbit. Back in a few. I'm 24 and I've got everything to 
Mind Riot, Soundgarden, on Radio Orbit, KOPN. Before that, uh, a little more Chris Cornell. We heard Preaching the End of the World from his solo effort, Euphoria Morning. Anyway, we're talking about RFID, so I figured I'd better play uh, Preaching the End of the World there. Anyway, uh, let's take care of a little bit of business here. Uh, KOPN and Mojo's present Maura O'Connell, Saturday, August 7th. O'Connell finds what's most potent in the music. She is strong in both the Nashville and the Irish traditions. And uh, opening for Mora is going to be singer-songwriter Lee Ruth, uh, of course, from the station here, KOPN. And he'll be playing uh, lots of songs off the Everybody's Got Love CD, which is available here at the station. And um, information about that show, it's a non-smoking event. Uh, information available at www.mojoscolumbia.com or 573-875-0588. Check it out, Maura O'Connell and Lee Ruth. That's Saturday, August 7th, all right? Back to Radio Orbit here. I, t- I said uh, at the end of the hour I wanted to talk a little bit about intelligence, and it's something that I've been reading a lot about lately, and it's related to all these things we've been talking about the duality of technology. We have this incredible technology that's developing faster and faster and faster every day, and we don't even know the half of it, you know? We don't even know the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. And, pardon me, the technology in and of itself is neither good nor bad. But we live in this world of duality, black and white, God and Satan, good and bad, up and down, on and off. And this world of duality takes things like technology and then expresses them in these different ways. And the technology can be utilized to do good things and it can also be utilized to do horrific things and this is the struggle that the human species faces right now because we're in a situation where we've now developed technology which is sufficiently advanced to destroy ourselves we can eliminate our own species Forget about the stuff that we're doing on purpose. Forget about the hundreds of millions of pounds of toxic crap that we dump on our own nest every every year, every day. You know, forget about that stuff that we do on purpose. Forget about all the chemicals, the new chemicals that we develop every year, thousands of them, that are never fully tested, really. They go into all kinds of different things, and, and many of them which are highly, highly carcinogenic. Forget about those. Forget about all that stuff. We do all that stuff on purpose, okay? The technology that we talk about using in a militaristic sense or a beneficial sense, well, that's something that 
the technologies have been developed that we haven't utilized them yet. Thank God. Uh, the nuclear technology was utilized one uh, twice back there in 1945. We all know that. And it hasn't been used, at least to our knowledge, at least not on that scale. Uh, there, and the reason I say that is that there are uh, people that say that uh, small nuclear devices have been used uh, since the end of World War II, but that's speculation, so we're not going to talk too much about that. But, uh, but I'm open to discuss it if somebody has any evidence of it. So, Anyway, these other technologies, scalar technologies, directed weapons, directed energy uh, technologies, uh, space-based microwave platforms, and on and on, uh, tectonic weapons, where we can use electromagnetic energy to generate earthquakes and volcanism. This is not fantasy. This is, this is uh, stuff that is now on the record. In fact, uh, Clinton's former Secretary of Defense, his name was Cohen, I forget what his first name was, was on the record of talking about... Uh, he mentioned it, interestingly enough, in a speech about eco-terrorism, and he snuck it in there, and he talked about eco-terrorism, and that terrorists in the... that, that we, we needed to start to be aware of terrorists using electromagnetics to induce volcanism and earthquakes. So, so this is stuff that they're talking about openly, if quietly, and they're real things. So the technology is there, and it can be used for good things and for bad things. But why is that? And this is where we need to start talking about intelligence. And the first thing we need to do is, uh, well, we could talk a little bit about the brain, but we also need to make a distinction between intellect and intelligence and that's a big big distinction and it's not made often enough and I want to make that point tonight and I'd like to thank uh, Joseph Chilton Pierce uh, who I'm hoping to have on the show uh, coming up here don't know exactly when but I'd like to have him as a guest coming up and we're actually talking uh, via email uh, but we haven't nailed anything down yet he's a very busy man anyway uh, I learned a lot of this uh, through Joseph, and uh, there are now many other resources. Once you get involved in it, you can find out there are a lot of other people that are working on the same things, but he was the guy that introduced me to these concepts originally, so thank you, Joe. Anyway, we will make a distinction between intelligence and intellect, and um, we'll talk a little bit about the brain and how the brain structure is designed what nature had in mind, what the agenda was, and how it works in coordination and symbiotically with the heart. And we'll be back in a few minutes to talk about that here on Radio Orbit, KOPN. Oh, oh, oh. 
two from the unforgettable fire that was Elvis Presley and America okay 420 or so 423 got about a half hour left of my program here we're going to talk a little bit about intelligence like we were talking about before the for the break there so the human brain okay is what we call the triune brain tri as in three trinity significant concept there too anyway the triune brain the oldest and most deeply rooted part of that brain is what we call the R system or the reptilian brain and uh, physiologically uh, th- this is it's very obvious there really are three separate structures here that are sort of molded into one another um, the the newer uh, evolutionarily newer parts of the brain wrapped around the older parts so when I talk about the 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 R system and then the you know then then the the mammalian the old mammalian system on top of that I lit I mean it physically these are uh, one wrapped on top of another so so what we have is what we call the reptilian brain or the R system and this is the um, oldest uh, evolutionarily speaking the oldest part of our brain it uh, it's uh, the starts at the base of the neck and runs up uh, um, up the neck to the back the base of the head and I won't go too much into the physiology of it but in any case uh, the R system is responsible for all of our basic instincts including our autonomic functions uh, everything that we do without thinking about it the R system controls that stuff so so it controls things like our the fact that we breathe while we're asleep the fact that our heart always keeps beating even though we don't think about it uh, the fact that our glands produce what they're supposed to produce um, that stuff is uh, is maintained by the R system in addition uh, what's maintained outwardly is the fight or flight complex that sort of idea the the R system is only concerned about moving toward that which is pleasurable and away from that which is dangerous so the R the R system is fundamentally concerned with survival primarily and uh, moving away from the dangerous and toward the pleasurable not necessarily beneficial that's an important distinction so that's the first part of the brain the second and and uh, not quite as old as the reptilian part of the brain that developed in uh, mammals now was the what's called the old mammalian brain and that's also uh, referred to as the limbic system and or the emotional cognitive system and that's uh, the part of the brain that wraps around the R system and this is where we get things like emotion and this is where all learning occurs it's also where memory is uh, uh, where the where the, the the phenomenon of memory occurs we really can't explain it still uh, but some of this new uh, uh, neural uh, neurology research is really really cool and astounding things they're finding out and again it goes back to quantum mechanics quantum physics and non-local fields 
non-local fields and how the brain taps into those fields. So, in any case, okay, so we have the emotional cognitive brain wrapped around the R system, wrapped around the reptilian brain, and then the most recent addition that Mother Nature has given the human brain is the new mammalian brain, or what we call the neocortex. Neocortex, neo meaning new, the new cortex. So the neocortex, much, much bigger than both the reptilian brain and the uh, emotional cognitive brain combined, the neocortex very, very big, um, this is called the new mammalian brain. Now, the new mammalian brain is... Um, the neocortex where all of our higher functioning takes place. Now, not higher learning, but higher functioning. Like, uh, this is problem solving and, you know, advanced mathematics and uh, physics. Those, those sorts of things come from, from the neocortex. Now, for a long time, there was talk, and still is, about the left hemisphere, right hemisphere, uh, sort of one being... Um, dependent upon for certain activities and thought patterns and the other side uh, for other certain ideas and thought patterns, one being primarily uh, creative and the other side being primarily logical and objective. But it's turning out that the, some of that research is being turned over. Uh, there's a lot we don't know about the brain. Um, I don't want to talk too much about the physiology about it because I'm not an expert, but I do know some of these basic concepts. So, in any case, uh, we have the neocortex now, this giant brain that's up on top of the emotional cognitive brain and up on top of the reptilian brain. Uh, this is where we have our higher functioning. Now, here's where it gets interesting uh, because, uh, and let me add one more thing, the frontal lobes, what we call the frontal lobes, are the most recent, recent evolutionary adi uh, additions, and these are the, front, the, the most frontal part of the neocortex. Now, the interesting, that has, the interesting thing that has occurred in recent years, there is a new field of medicine that is emerging, and it is called neurocardiology. Well, neurocardiology is exactly what it sounds like. It has to do with neurology, and it also has to do with the heart. Well, what we've learned is that up to 65% of the cells that make up the heart and the pericardial sac which holds the heart are neurons. Now again, the implications of this are profound because these neurons are no different than the neurons that are found between your ears. Okay? And what we're learning is that there actually is an intelligence of the heart. And this intelligence of the heart is something that needs to work in concert with the neurology, the neurology of the brain. And there's a direct connection between the two. But the connection has to be made first before it can continue. And... What this means about intelligence goes back to what I said at the beginning of the hour, that there is a, a distinction that needs to be made between intellect and intelligence. Intellect 
is what comes from the neocortex, but is concerned only with possibility. Intellect only cares to ask the question, can it be done? Is it possible? Intellect asks the question, can it be done? Is it possible? Solve the problem. But intellect asks these questions without regard to appropriateness. In other words, intellect doesn't care about the overall well-being of the system. It is only concerned with solving problems and asking questions. Is it possible? So, what you get is intellect developing technology and asking the questions, but doing it with a lack of intelligence. And this intelligence comes from the connection between the neurology of the neocortex and the, and the neurology of the heart. And this is the difference between intelligence and intellect. Intelligence uses the neocortex and uses the ability of intellect and the higher functions of the brain. But intelligence uses those functions in a beneficial manner. Beneficial for the individual and beneficial for the species and beneficial for the the nest in which the species must live, that being planet Earth. In other words, you know, making sure that you don't destroy your own home. And so what we have had is this rampant we've had it's it's never happened before in history, but we have this uh, complete separation between intellect and intelligence and that combined with the industrial and technological revolution has put us in a pretty interesting predicament because right now we've got a lot of people running the world who are operating intellectually but they are not operating intelligently and the intelligence of the heart is something that has to be first of all it has to be learned it has to be known about it has to be nurtured and it has to be realized within the individual now with children the way we raise our children we can make these connections and we can help the child to actually develop fully as nature intended and that means the advancement of the intellect but also the advancement of intelligence and this connection of the heart and the mind and so all of the stories that we heard in the old ancient love stories and the the the, the stories that the sages told us and that the biblical stories and the religious mythology all of these things talk about the heart and the importance of the heart. Well, it turns out that science and biology are now bearing out 
what the sages told us all those years ago, and what have content, and and what the what the the brilliant people of our society always tell us that this balance between the heart and the mind is required if we're going to if we're going to successfully move forward as a species. And right now we find ourselves in a critical situation because we have an incredible intellect that has taken advantage of technology, computers being one of the main things, and is now being able to develop, develop that technology and evolve that technology faster and faster and faster. And in fact, now the technology is actually evolving on its own. We have smart computers now, and we have artificial intelligences, be they rudimentary or not. And in fact, I, my, my own personal opinion is that there are, at certain levels uh, and in certain institutions, uh, there is technology that is much beyond what we even imagine, uh, because what you and me get to see as Joe Public uh, is not what's really available it's just what's available to us what's currently off the shelf that stuff is typically obsolete and um, the technologies that are actually real and that are being utilized uh, for development of new technologies and are held pretty closely in corporate hands and government hands these technologies are long long beyond what uh, we get off the shelf so you can just imagine the technologies that are really at play here. And these technologies are sufficiently advanced now that when they're used in an aggressive fashion to destroy things, well, they're highly efficient. They are highly efficient. And whether they are uh, atomic, physical in nature whether they're electromagnetic in nature, whether they're biological in nature. We talked about genetic engineering earlier in the program and Francis Crick, who died on Wednesday, and the, and the implications of his work. Uh, you know, bugs that can be created now that can actually uh, go after a specific genotype or race, race-specific pathogens you know these are things that are being talked about openly so these things exist chemical weapons beyond your worst nightmares and then things that we don't even know about so when these things start to be used in an aggressive fashion for destruction they are highly effective and if they become unleashed life as we know it on this planet will change and it will be a shock to many 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 people if that actually goes down now it's crazy because it's a double-edged sword because they continue to develop the technology in order to thwart the technology you have to have greater and greater weaponry more sophisticated weaponry, more sophisticated means of detection in order to detect the sophisticated weaponry that the other guy is developing just as fast as you're developing. And what it comes down to is if you, if you uh, 
if you propagate that curve, you see that it's just a continuous escalation until eventually somebody starts utilizing the technology, somebody actually starts using the technology, and then it drops off the cliff. And then the technology destroys itself, or something radical happens, and, uh, and we start from square one again. And this may have happened in the past. It may have happened many times in the past. Our historical perspective goes back a very, very short period of time based on the entire length of the life of the Earth and the solar system. So, so nature, as she developed this incredible intellect, this incredible neocortex, she also developed this neurology of the heart, this intelligence of the heart in order to harness and have dominion over the intellect of the brain because the intellect without the wisdom of the heart is what we have you get neutron bombs you get incredible feats of engineering you get incredible feats of mathematical theory and proof and calculation in order to do these other things. You get DNA manipulation and discovery of helix structures like Francis Crick did 50 years ago. This is what intellect does. But when intellect is devoid of intelligence you run into problems. And that's where we are on planet Earth. So, I encourage everyone to learn a little bit about intellect and intelligence and the difference between the two. And as you're trying to develop your intellect, understand that you have to de develop your intelligence as well. And this intelligence primarily comes from your heart. And this is not New Age mamby-pamby BS. This is now scientific fact, physiological fact. The medical field of neurocardiology is real. Only very forward-thinking researchers and doctors are working in the field. Why? Because there's no money in it. And the reason that these things don't get fully developed is because the grant money and the research money goes to typically the current paradigm of research and the researchers that are running that paradigm and it happens in energy just like it's happening in medicine and it happens in many, many different areas of human endeavor. But historically, we have seen that the people on the fringe are usually the ones that are the leading edge of the new knowledge. And with regard to neurocardiology, that's definitely happened now. And we're in the middle of it. And it's an incredibly exciting time to learn about these things because this is what's going to be required 
if our species is going to survive the development of all of this technology. It has to be harnessed. It has to be used with wisdom. And if we can do that, well, then we can change the world. But we literally are, uh, we're balancing, we're on a tightrope right now. We're, we're walking on a razor's edge between paradise and Armageddon. And the slightest shift of weight and energy and focus in one direction or another it seems will 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 push over the edge toward one of those two potentialities but something new is coming and the technology is not going to allow the status quo uh, business as usual for anybody, even the people who own the world, as my friend Terrence used to say, even the people who own the world with their long-term and short-term projections, they understand that if you propagate these themes, these concepts of what's really happening right now behind the scenes, well, business as usual is uh, is no longer an option. We'll be back in a minute. This is Radio Orbit on KOPN. Gonna get back to basic. I guess I'll start it up again.
that was recovering the satellites from the album of the same name. This is Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5. Just a few minutes to go here with the show. I'm going to wrap it up with a little music in a few minutes. Got a couple more minutes to talk to you, though. My friend Carol Greenspan will be here to join you in just a, uh, just a few minutes. She has the show called Jewish Spectrum, playing some lovely music for you every Sunday morning at 5 o'clock. And uh, this is Radio Orbit every Sunday morning from 2 o'clock in the morning until 5. So Carol's probably on her way in here right now. Hello there, Carol, if you got the radio on. And this is Mike Hagan, Radio Orbit, KOPN 89.5. We were just talking about intelligence and the difference between intellect and intelligence and, um, and what a critical, critical time it is for... Uh, for intelligence and I think uh, when we talk about so-called intellectuals well I think that's a very accurate term now you can be intellectual without being intelligent Uh, and this is a root cause of many and many many other things that I think we're seeing in our world today Of course, that's just my opinion, and I appreciate the opportunity to give that opinion here uh, in the United States of America, and I don't want to see that opportunity go away. I want to see technology be used for the benefit of myself and my fellow humans, and I don't want to see that technology used to destroy any more of... uh, of uh, my fellow humans or or the entire race I'm not worried about the planet you know people talk about oh man we got to save mother earth well mother earth is very good at protecting herself 
And if she decides to, and that's a whole nother can of worms when we open that, we'll have to do some, some, uh, we'll do a show on earth changes. Uh, there's uh, quite a few people that talk about earth changes. Been talking about them for a number of years now. Um, but uh, Mother Earth is going to do her thing, okay? And if she decides to, she can open up a six-pack of whoop-ass and uh, things will uh, go whatever way, uh, whatever they go. But we have very little control over it. We like to think we have control over it, uh, but we don't have that much control. And the sun, of course, I consider that a part of nature, and the sun could do the same thing. We talked about that uh, last week, and we also talked about it a little bit tonight. So we live in a dynamic world, a dynamic universe, a dynamic solar system. Everything is in flux. Everything is changing. We have the ability to use our hearts and our minds together to effectively create a future that is appropriate and beneficial for our species and for the future of our species. So we'll be talking about this and more as the show goes on. You've been with Mike Hagan, Radio Orbit on KOPN every Sunday. Thanks for listening. Six minutes, Carol Greenspan comes up with Jewish Spectrum. Have a great day. Radio Orbit, KOPN. Who'd like to change the world? Wants to shoot the girl Who gets to work for bread Who wants to get ahead Who hands out equal rights Who starts and ends that fine And not rent and raise Or end up asleep. Who can make hard one game fall like summer rain? Every man must be what his life can be. So don't call. I will walk away Who wants to please everyone Who says it all can be done Still sit up on that fence no one I've heard of you Don't call me baby Don't talk in maybe Don't talk like has been Sing it like it should be
One different, one last time, one and the 